we uh, reflected on the idea of what it takes to get to be the best. There's a, an enormous dogfight, uh, and and some of the effort that goes into that is productive, but a lot of it is is purely wasteful. As in the the quest for getting to uh, an elite school, you've got parents spending large sums of money and students spending endless hours on SAT test prep. You know that's a completely socially useless activity. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Welcome to episode 26 of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Joining us again this week is economist Robert H. Frank, and we just, he had too much material and we couldn't get through it in the previous episode, so please stay tuned for this show, which gets into some of his works a little bit more deeply. Enjoy the episode. So if we take the winner-take-all book, um, you argue that technology enables the best in every category to serve a broader group of people and therefore to sort of accrue more market share and reap more of the rewards. Now that book was written in 1995. Have you, what, how would you update that today if you could? Yeah, I, I uh, had occasion to think about that. Uh, well, two occasions to think about it. We, we were asked to do a, a new edition for the UK market. And so Phil and I had to write a, a new preface for that. So that was a chance to, to sort of look back and see uh, how well what we had written in the 1995 title had held up. This was a 2010 title in the UK. And, and I felt uh, astonished by not only how well the predictions that we had made in the book had held up, but how how specific many of them were. It, it was, yeah, I, I, maybe it, it sounds uh, too self-serving to put it that way, but uh, the 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 book's predictions uh, were that inequality would continue to grow because the technologies that were contributing to it were just in their infancy. Many of them, you know, it, it hasn't been that long ago that people were dialing across the Atlantic and reading phone book entries to one another to keep a line open because there weren't enough lines and you couldn't get one when you needed one. So companies had these people, they would dial up the office in, in England and read the phone book to them so they'd have an open line. You know, now, now if there's somebody who's the best at, at what she does, anywhere in the, in the world, we'll get wind of that quickly. We'll be able to find out uh, how to get what she does to us. It's it, the, the things she's making probably have a much uh, greater share of uh, intellectual content in them in terms of their value and, and, and less in the way of hardware. That means you can ship most of that for free anywhere in the world. Uh, and, and so, yeah, the, the predictions were by and large quite good. I did a podcast with, I, I can't remember the, it, it was a popular British podcast uh, when I was in Berkeley uh, giving a talk recently. He wanted to do a, a it was about a, a book of mine that had just come out. He wanted to do a second episode on Winner Take All. He was a big fan of the Winner Take All book. And, and he asked me, did you get anything wrong in the book? Uh, which in a way may be your question too. And uh, 
Actually, that was that was very interesting to to think about. I I hadn't really thought specifically about that question, but even reflecting on it briefly, I, I saw quickly that we were almost completely off base in terms of our predictions about how these technologies would affect uh, popular culture. The the chapter we wrote on that in the 1995 book. Uh, predicted that we would see an ever increasing tendency for the, the big budget sequel to dominate the, the scene. The, and, and we've for sure seen some of that. Uh, but what, what I certainly didn't see was that there was gonna be this uh, amazing uh, spread of really high quality, affordable hardware that would enable people to make music and videos uh, at a professional level with little more than a thousand or two dollars outlay in terms of upfront investment. And so we've gotten literally uh, tens of thousands of people trying their hand at artistic endeavor. Uh, you could say maybe most of it's not very good, but uh, that doesn't matter because we don't watch most of it. We watch only the best of it and the best of it is incredibly good. I don't know if you are watching streaming series uh, these days. That's what's kept my wife and me afloat during the pandemic. Uh, and, and there's just not enough hours in the day to watch all the quality content that's available out there. So, that, yeah, that was, I, th I think, uh, Chris Anderson, uh, the, the guy who started the TED Talks, uh, had, had a book called The Long Tail, and it was about how the backlist was going to have new life once people could search and find things that match their idiosyncratic interests. Well, I think, yeah, it's still true that the best-selling books account for a larger share of total book sales every year. Uh, and, the, and the biggest budget films are still drawing in a, a bigger share of the gross. But, but the fact that there are under that umbrella, uh, that set of umbrellas, these myriad little entries that are, are so satisfying if you if you search them out and and find them you know that that prediction uh we were just wrong about yeah and i think if you add to that everything that's happening with social media right like you'd have to compare that with you know just the amount of screen hours or like the latest youtube sensation or whatever that is because if you're looking at movies like for sure you can look at the blockbuster cycle and that kind of thing but if you look at what it takes to start a youtube channel or like tiktok yeah. now yeah. you know like it takes absolutely nothing and you have all these people who are now getting a lot of airtime and a lot of visibility that right yeah it doesn't i mean doesn't every winner take all moment come from a new technology revolution and so a new technology revolution comes around you get a winner take all moment and then and then there's another technology revolution that gives us another round of uh of winner take all and doesn't that sort of serial winner take all doesn't that curb the excesses of winner take all in any way you know, no, no uh, monopoly position is ever secure. There are always new things coming along that and tastes uh, uh, saturate and shift. So, so yeah, there there is a tendency for uh, the winner today to maybe fade uh, in time. But still, uh, the question is: uh, Will the reward structure still be highly skewed? Uh, Yes, is the answer. Maybe it won't be the same people getting the big rewards consistently year in and year out. Maybe maybe the identities of the winners will shift. But 
but the the winners will still get outsized rewards and and the expenditure cascade problem that's that's the real source of waste uh, is is not going to be attenuated by the fact that it's different winners over time who are who are setting the the spending trends for the rest of the people. Yeah, so I mean that's a really kind of a great segue into into the next thing, which is so if we return to your idea of uh, you know consumption tax before, and so basically like when I'm listening to that, one of the questions that I have is like ultimately by taxing something more do we not somehow create a situation where either we have less spending in general or we have less of that specific thing? And then the problem becomes, are we not sort of creating a drag on innovation? Are we not creating a drag on, you know, whatever the industries that cater to that? Because I mean, a dollar spent theoretically is better than a dollar in the bank because that is, it's driving something and maybe it's driving luxury construction, but I mean, it's still driving something. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And if if luxury construction were the only useful thing we could think of to spend money on and the alternative were to have no spending, then it would be, I agree, uh, unequivocally better to spend money on luxury consum- consumption than to have people unemployed doing nothing. The progressive consumption tax would not uh, have any of the negative effects you described because if it were phased in properly, what you would do uh, ideally would be to enact it into law at time zero, a time perhaps when when uh, the economy was not at full em- employment. Uh, you, you don't want to curb any spending of any sort during a time like that. You would enact it then and you would say it's going to be uh, it, it's going to be phased in gradually once the unemployment rate gets down to a specified level. The effect of that would be to launch uh, a gold rush. The the people who would see the progressive consumption tax coming would say, we better add our wing onto the mansion now before that that tax man comes and and makes it more expensive to do it. So you'd see without a single nickel of government outlay, you'd see a a massive rush, rush of expenditure. It would be better to see a rush of expenditure on bridges and 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 vaccine research than on bigger mansions, but uh, if the alternative were unemployment, uh, any port in a storm. The the tax phased in gradually would have the effect of the wealthy uh, saying, well, instead of building a a million dollar addition onto my mansion, I'll tell the architect to scale that back to $500,000. That would mean an extra $500,000 in my account doesn't just sit there. Uh, money in, in accounts seeks uh, opportunities to be invested. The, the banks, the, 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 the entrepreneurs would make their pitches. Uh, the, the funds would go to the, the people whose business plan seemed most promising. Uh, the investment would uh, increase the nation's capital stock. That would make workers more productive. That would raise their incomes. And if you steer a dollar away from consumption, especially just luxury consumption, and into investment, the demand for final goods and services stays the same. Uh, the, the, 
the spending is consumption plus investment plus government plus net ex export. So take a dollar away from consumption, add it to investment, you've still got the same total in, uh, spending as before. And that's what determines employment. So there's really no downward pressure on employment at all. And the magic, the fiscal magic here is that over time as productivity would increase, even though people would be consuming a smaller fraction of their income under progressive consumption tax, income would grow more rapidly. So the absolute amount they'd consume would be greater than if we'd stayed on the old trajectory. So 20% of a really big number, is 80% uh, uh, of a really big number is uh, a bigger number than 95% of a much smaller number. We don't want to have a lot of uh, dirty consumption. That's a separate problem. We need to we need to have other instruments to make sure that what you're spending your money on doesn't cause other kinds of harm. Uh, the, the the carbon tax would be the the easiest solution for for many of the problems that we're worried about. Uh, it's been a real political nightmare that people haven't taken advantage of that opportunity. Uh, they they. Uh, say that we can't have a carbon tax because the people in the middle can't afford any more economic burden. No, you have a revenue neutral carbon tax. The top 10% of earners uh, account for 50% of all emissions. They'd pay in the lion's share of the revenue to a carbon tax. A revenue neutral tax means you collect the revenue, then you give it back to the taxpayers in lump sum amounts that don't depend on how much energy they use. You could rebate the, the revenue progressively in a way that would, would have 80 or 90% of taxpayers getting more rebate uh, uh, checks each month, more in rebate checks than they'd paid in carbon taxes. And the rich would end up paying more, but, but they would be the ones who'd be the primary beneficiaries of whatever climate benefits came from the tax because it's their property disproportionately that's being destroyed by the, the warming climate. So it, the fact that we haven't done that, it's just, it's low hanging fruit. It's cash on the table. I, 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 I'm so upset that political leaders haven't figured out a way to explain to people why they'd be much better off if we did that. It, I mean, it also protects investment from additional tax. I mean, the, 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 that's so big to, in the business community. Like, we don't tax my investments, don't tax my capital gains. Don't. That's huge, and this avoids that. Yes. Yeah. Um, my mantra is tax harmful activities. A tax has two effects. It raises revenue. We need revenue. It discourages the thing you tax. Uh, we now tax all sorts of things that there's no reason to discourage. Why do we tax payrolls? Do we think it's a bad thing for companies to hire workers? What a, what a crazy thing to tax. When we could tax noise, we could tax congestion, we could tax carbon. There are all these things we could tax. And if that's too hard on low-income people, we know what to do about that. Give them money. Love it. So. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to another book here. Um, we're sort of picking some high, highlight ideas from from different books. Um, so in the book uh, Falling Behind, uh, you know how how rising inequality harms the middle class. You introduce the idea of positional and non-positional goods. Now uh, I've heard for years uh, that since 1982, the income to the rich, and I think in your I think in the book it's like 1979, but that that time frame uh, to today. The all the income gains have gone to the rich. Everyone else has gone down. First, that's not technically true, is it? I mean, on, they've gone down on a relative basis. So, could you explain 
positional, non-positional uh, in that in that uh, aspect. Okay, those, those are really two different categories. Uh, positional goods uh, is a term, uh, I, it's a coinage I borrowed from Fred Hirsch, a uh, British economist. Uh, they're, they're, they're goods whose value is determined in important measure by how they compare with other goods in the same category. So houses, cars, jewelry, uh, vacations, uh, th things where relative amounts loom large. Non-positional goods, uh, contacts matters for everything, but they're ones for which relative comparisons matter little. So uh, in the case of safety, nobody would move to a world where it was twice as likely that you would be killed on the job each year just to have a relatively safe job. So if you if you if you could move to a new world where your risk of dying would be double what it is here, but everyone else would have a risk of dying that would be four times as great as what it is here, you wouldn't want to move there, even though you would have a relatively safe job there. Uh, with houses, it's different. Uh, people, uh, if you say, where would you rather live? Where you're you live in a neighborhood where it's 4,000 square feet, everyone else lives in a neighborhood where, where it's 6,000 square feet, or uh, another world where you live in a neighborhood where it's 3,000 square feet, others live in a neighborhood where it's 2,500 square feet. Most people pick the second world, even though their house would be smaller there. I would pick the second world because in that world, my kids would go to the good schools. Uh, in, in the first world, they'd go to the schools widely regarded as inferior. Uh, I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal. Uh, I lived in a two-room house with no running water, no electricity. Uh, never one day did the house seem in any way inadequate, uh, but it wouldn't have seemed inadequate here. It would have been a, a screaming sig signal of what a failure I was. Uh, my, my Nepali friends, if they saw my house here, they'd, they'd gawk and wonder, why would anybody need such a grand house? But you wouldn't think that. Uh, you know, those are positional goods. Uh, in terms of income gains, uh, it's what's interesting is that the pattern is the is essentially the same no matter which group we look at. So if you look at the economy as a whole, those are the numbers you were talking about earlier. Uh, most of the income gains uh, have gone to people in the top 20% of the income distribution. If we look within the top 20%, most of the gains in that group have gone to the, the top 5%. And as high up as you have data to go, that's still true. So if we look at the top one-tenth of 1%, those are the biggest gainers in the top 1%. What about people in the middle? Uh, in real hourly ter terms, men have not gained anything uh, in the middle uh, since 1970, really. Our uh, uh, middle-income families, uh, do they have more? Uh, yes, they have more, only because there are more two-earner families now than there were then. Uh, Elizabeth Warren and her daughter wrote a book called The Two-Income Trap, uh, and they wanted to know how come parents could get by just fine on one income in the 50s and 60s, but now they can't make ends meet on two incomes. And the answer was that the second income went to fuel a largely fruitless bidding war for houses and better school districts. That's the main concern of a parent. 
you get a little more money, you, you want to get your kids into better schools. Well, school quality is almost one-to-one -one linked to residential house price averages. The, the good schools are the ones that serve the more expensive neighborhoods in any area. So, so there's there's a the, the tie there, and this is I made the tie in my head, but I didn't I didn't make it clearly in a question. That the tie there is, I think, it's we say that it's not enough to have a higher absolute income in the lowest quartile, and the reason it's not enough, if if it is a higher absolute income, if it's the same absolute income, that's not enough because of the cascade of spending, and it's the cascade of spending on the positional and non-positional goods. That, that makes that problematic, right? So yes. I find it very, I, I've always thought looking at that, there's a chart, you can look it up. I think it's the National Bureau of Economic Research that says the bottom the bottom quintile has is higher, their income is higher today than it was in 1982. And so the question always comes to the, to the um, economists on the right or the commentators on the right, well, what are they complaining about? And you, you have the answer in that yeah. cascading expenses. Doesn't matter if you have higher income, life is more expensive. Yeah, I think uh, they should read some Charles Darwin. Uh, Dar Darwin saw this problem very clearly, much more clearly than many of today's economists see it. Uh, I, I codify his central in insight in a very simple way. His insight was that life is graded on the curve. Uh, it's not how big you are, it's not how strong you are, how smart you are that matters. It's how those traits compare with the corresponding traits of your nearest rivals. And if, if you fall behind, uh, that's fatal in the Darwinian scheme. Uh, the, 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 the preponderance of vertebrate species are polygynous. That means the males take more than one mate if they can. Uh, the if they can qualifier matters because if some take more than one, that means others don't get any at all. And that's of course, the ultimate loser slot in the Darwinian scheme. You don't pass your stuff along if you don't have a mate. And so, of course, males take every avenue available to them to secure access to mates. And that often means fighting with one another, uh, cheating one another, doing all, all, all any, anything that's on the table. The, the weaponry in those battles is often very conspicuous. You look at the bull elk, the antlers are four feet across, they weigh 40 pounds, uh, the biggest ones. Those are horribly maladaptive from the point of view of bulls as a group. If they get chased by wolves into a, a thicket, they're surrounded and killed without trouble. If you don't have big antlers, though, you don't get a mate. Uh, you, you don't win any of your battles with other males for access to females. And so that's another example of just a fundamental conflict between what it's in the in individual's interest to do and what it's in our interest to do. If, if they could take a vote at the count of three, all antler racks shrink by half, that'd be a big win for them. They, they don't understand any of that. They can't do that. The, the sad uh, aspect of the story is that we have brains big enough to understand the nature of that problem, and yet we still don't take advantage of pushing the button that makes the antler smaller by half. It, I mean, is it? it sounds like competition doesn't give us the best outcome. It could give me the best outcome. It's competition is a very individualistic outcome. It doesn't really- Well said. Me. Yeah, Adam Smith's inv invisible hand is understood by his modern disciples to mean, turn selfish people loose, tell them to do the best they can for themselves and we will get great results for society as a whole. 
Uh, that's often true, just as it was often true in Darwin's scheme. You know, the, the, the hawks compete, uh, keen eyesight helps the individual hawk, it helps hawks generally. Many traits are good for both the individual and the group. And in competition, if, if, if a producer introduces a cost-saving innovation or a product design improvement, he, he does that not to help society, but to steal market share from his rivals. Uh, the good thing is that they're quick to copy him, and then there's a scrum, and in the in the final analysis, everybody gets access to the better products at cheaper prices. The producers earn only enough to cover their costs. Everybody wins. Uh, that's a great thing. But that's not what happens each and every time. In the times when individual and collective interests are in conflict, we get bad outcomes, and it's often possible to take simple steps, steps that wouldn't involve a lot of bureaucracy to change people's incentives. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely, without going down like a dark and potentially contentious rabbit hole, I've heard that argument made with, um, it's called enforced monogamy, right? Like that, you know, human societies, like some human societies enforce monogamies, some don't, and that there's then this phenomenon of a problem that, you know, certain men get a disproportionate amount of access and whatever. Let's not go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> but but uh, but recognize too that competition occurs at, at lots of levels of aggregation. So we're in a competition with China, I think it's fair to say, for influence in the world. And there are many aspects of the Chinese system that we find uh, utterly unacceptable. They, they have... Uh, uh, very uh, weak records on human rights. Uh, they do, do not have the ability to choose their own leaders in the sense that we would traditionally define that. Uh, what they do have, however, is the ability to act collectively. Uh, if, if there's a, a, a problem arising because what it's in the interest of individuals to do is in conflict with what it's in society's interest that all do, they have better tools for addressing a problem like that than we do. And so we're better in an important way than they are, but they're better than we are in an important way. And we could clean up our act at no cost to ourselves that would put us in a better competitive position, and yet we don't. That's the frustration that, that I experience when I think about that competition. Yeah. Uh, so, so Ter Terry and I had this conversation between us on sidelines about luck versus skill, success and luck, good fortune and the myth of meritocracy. And so I'm going to ask you this, this is a totally personal question. It's kind of an aside. Um, so I have loosely compared myself for years with others uh, that I've worked with, and I've got this gut sense of being incredibly lucky. Uh, yes, I can point to working more hours, working harder, taking more chances that perhaps they didn't take, but my gut says that I didn't create my own success, but I can't create an argument to prove that. I, I can get to the point, uh, for example, I, I, I know that I was born in the US, pretty great. You know, that's, that's, that's an advantage, right? My parents were married, they're still married, that's an advantage. Um, I, was, uh, I was taught to work hard, that's a great lesson to learn. I'm tall, I'm white. These are all additive to my success, and I know that. There are plenty of others that have the same profile and are not. And so I can't, every time I do the analysis, I come back that there's something that I have done that has added to or created my success. It's not a cultural phenomenon. Um, I have done something. 
Is meritocracy just a myth or is it part of a bigger story? Yeah, I have to say that subtitle to my book wasn't one that I, I favored. Uh, okay. I, I, I knew it would it would be interpreted by many as, as a statement that, well, it really doesn't matter if the most important jobs are, are filled by the most uh, hardworking, talented people. We can just throw people into any old slots and, and, and everything will be just fine. No, that was not at all uh, the, the sense of the argument I offered in that book. What's true is that the people who, who succeed in the modern marketplace, the modern marketplace is very competitive. It, people talk about monopoly this, monopoly that. Uh, it's, it's way more competitive than things used to be. It used to be that if your parents were uh, in the right slots, you were much more likely to end up in the, in the, in the big slots yourself. That's still true, of course, but it's less true than it used to be uh, in the in the following sense, if, if, if we look at these uh, really big prizes in the labor market, the, the ones that we read about, the ones that uh, put stars in people's eyes when they, they hear about them, those markets attract literally thousands of contestants, uh, maybe even millions in some cases. How, how many 10-year-olds in the US wanna be shortstop for the New York Yankees? Uh, it, it's not a small number. Uh, what's true is that there are, human limits on how hard you can work and how much talent you can have. Uh, you know, maybe there continue to be genetic mutations, but, but uh, and so maybe those limits will expand or, or even contract, who knows. But at any moment, they are what they are. And if you've got thousands of contestants for a prize, uh, look, look let, let's say that, that it's a pure meritocratic race. It's, it's uh, completely performance-based. So the, the, the one who breaks the tape first gets the prize. And, and performance depends, let's say, 49% on talent, 49% on effort, and 2% on luck. What we know is that when there are that many contestants, they're going to be a whole lot of them who are bumping up against the upper limits on talent and effort. There's, there's only so much you can bring to the, the, the table in those two domains. There's gonna be lots of people. So find the person who's, who's got the highest talent and effort values. Suppose that's you. Uh, then uh, there'll be many people right behind you. What's your luck value? Well, we chose you because you had the highest talent and effort. That means you might be lucky, you might be unlucky. On average, you'll have average luck. There'll be somebody in that big group right behind you who will have really good luck. And even though really good luck uh, applies to only 2% of performance, that's enough to push him ahead of you. So you can say, I think without any, any fear of misgivings that you succeeded because you were talented, because you worked hard, and because you were lucky. Uh, if it, but suppose it were just talent and effort. That's all that matters. Luck doesn't matter at all. Where did you get your talent and effort? As you seem to realize, uh, we, you know, we don't know what the answer is. It's, it's either it's genes or environment in some unknown combination. But which of those things do you think you can claim moral credit for? You know, you had good genes and, and a good environment. Well, lucky you. 
<laughs> I, I used to think uh, it was all luck, therefore, uh, and in a way, I still do think that, but I don't think it's useful to think about that way. And here's the thought experiment that made me change my mind about that. Let's, let's imagine two people, uh, they both face adversity, uh, they both pick themselves off the mat, they, they persevere, and they finally make it. Uh, one says, wow, wasn't I lucky to have drawn the genetic cards for perseverance in the, in the grand lottery, uh, genetic lottery. The other says, wow, I really pulled myself together and worked hard. Uh, I'm so proud of myself for sticking with it. Which one of those is more likely to pull herself together when the next tough time comes around? I, I, my money's on the second one. Yeah. So take pride in working hard. Absolutely. Uh, uh, that's that's totally, even though it's just pure dumb luck that you have the, the temperament and the upbringing that led you to do it. Just yeah, don't I mean, battle the don't battle the tax increases when they come. I think that's the key. <laughs> Put yeah, your I mean, arms think, around them. They're going to make yep. you happier. Yep. <laughs> yep. I mean, I think there's also like a levels of a level of analysis thing, right? Like there's one thing when you can like zoom out to a level when you look at okay, what are the social structures? What's my genetic predisposition? That there's like a level of analysis on which it makes sense to account for those lucky things. And then maybe there's another level of analysis where you look at what's my personal effort score that goes into something and maybe, right. uh, maybe it can be both and yeah what well, effort matters for sure and and uh you know we know that some of the people who've been most successful failed many times before they succeeded uh i i met or didn't meet but learned about i was adopted as an infant i learned about uh my mother's side birth family as an adult. Uh, apparently my great, great grandfather was the ice king. Uh, his, his name was Frederick Tudor. He, he, he was fabulously wealthy as a result of carving big blocks of ice out of ponds in New England uh, and shipping them to Calcutta and Havana and Charleston and other hot places. Uh, he spent months on several occasions in debtor's prisons. Everybody laughed at him thinking he could make money doing that. He failed multiple times before he broke out with that. And that's true. Of, so, so yeah, resilience we know is a really important quality, but where does that come from? You know, <laughs> if you have it, if you have it, you're lucky. Yeah. But, but don't think of it that way. So I, I just have, I just have one like sort of last uh, uh, question. Does it bother you that no one seems to be listening about the uh, progressive uh, consumption tax? I, I, I've never heard of that from anyone else. It, it's it gnaws at me night and day, uh, and it's it, it's not because I feel like I didn't get credit for my idea. That's not the issue. It's that there's all this huge wad of cash sitting on the table that could do enormous good in the world and we're not doing anything with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think that uh, your presence on the Mindful Wealth podcast will give it that highlight, but uh, to the extent <laughs> that we can push it, I think it's a great idea. And I, I, I'm, it's odd that I haven't heard of it before. I just want to say, yeah. Robert, thanks for being on. Uh, thanks for staying a little bit longer than expected. And I appreciate all your thoughts. And I look forward to the next conversation. It was my pleasure. You were both terrific hosts. Thank you. Thank you very much.